the National Archives podcast series. This is a three-part talk recorded at the National Archives on the 11th of Feb 2017. The event was organised as part of Outing the Past, the National LGBT History Festival. This is part one, with EJ Scott on collecting trans narratives for the Museum of Transology. Hi everyone, so I'm EJ, I want to talk to you about the Museum of Transology. I'm the collector and the curator. It's on at the moment at the Fashion Space Gallery, which is at the London College of Fashion, just off Oxford Street. So it's right in the middle of town, it's free, and it's, there's full access, so it's fully open to everyone. wanted to talk to you about my motivations behind the exhibition. Um, there's 122 objects on display it's the largest collection of trans artefacts that have been donated by trans people. I'm becoming increasingly confident in saying in the world. And it's most certainly the boldest exhibition of trans artefacts that's ever been put on. It's been designed essentially to challenge the notion that gender is always binary, fixed or biologically determined. Inside the exhibition, you'll find not only the 122 objects, there's about four hours of film footage and there's photographic documentation, um, basically beautiful portraits of, again, over about 100, 100 trans people, trans-identified people. The display, the photography is by an international fashion photographer, Bharat Sikha from India and from Sharon Kilgannon, um, who's a documentary photographer and has been a trans ally for over 10 years in Brighton, documenting events such as trans pride. So very grateful to the artists. Um, My Generation Films by Fox Fisher and um, adult film content by Buck Angel. It's a community-driven exhibition and it's based on the principle of what I would like to refer to as activist collecting. It's been collected in order to directly challenge UK's museums, to halt the erasure of ancestry, and to address the exclusionary and increasingly outdated binary archival system of gender classification. It's also a direct challenge to the idea that museums are neutral. Museums are full of gaps and absences that create bias, and trans people are absent from the visible narrative. Museums essentially mostly tell the story of the victor. They will tell white stories rather than brown and black stories. They will talk about men more often than they'll talk about women, about the fully abled rather than the differently abled, about the free rather than the incarcerated, and about straight lives rather than LGB lives. Increasingly, museums are being called upon and challenged to reach out and work directly with communities to inform the delivery of fuller renditions of the world around us. But trans narratives do remain missing overlooked and neglected. And there's many reasons for this. For a start, by and large, it's a very rare trans person who works in a museum. Um, And so trans people aren't within the institution to recognise narratives that fall beyond the cis gaze. 
and there's several reasons they don't work in the museum. Historically, many trans people lose access to education or have their careers interrupted because of trauma or because of transition. And at the end of the day, working in a museum or an archive is an incredibly rigorous intellectual field, so it's highly competitive. Even more basic than this, I think we could posit that if you don't see yourself represented in the museum, why would you think you want to work there? And would you think you'd be welcome to? In, um, as a way of sort of opening up the idea that trans people can work in the muse museum sector, we're running a, a series of events surrounding the exhibition. And one of the events is a Museum of Transology Youth Day. And we're encouraging the young people to come along. The first one's already booked out for 60, 60 young people. So we're expecting good numbers because we've got a second one going as well. They're going to bring along objects and they're going to be split into two groups. One group is going to be shown the exhibition behind the scenes by a young curator, so young people to young people, whilst the other group, and then they'll swap and do the same exercise, is given a heritage curatorial workshop where we discuss everything from light and space and narrative and font sizes, and they'll be given a cabinet. They'll then curate the young people's cabinet of curiosity, cab cabinet of transology, and this will go down to the London College of Fashion Library where it will be put on display for a month. So hopefully it will encourage them to think about the possibility that they might find this sector exciting. What I'm not suggesting that we do retrospectively is superimpose our notions of transness onto past identities and people of the past. Hartley, I'm sure you're familiar with what they said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently over there. So neither is it my intention in retracing possibilities of transness to displace other co-narratives. The last thing I would want to do is overwrite butch lesbian histories or sissy fag history that I found when I was researching Lady Malcolm's servants' balls, for example, and found the cross-dressing sissies to be, you know, wearing period dresses, etc. There is no need to overwrite these narratives. I think that complex co-narratives broaden the possibilities of our understanding, but it also gives us the opportunity to slow down and consider things more deeply. There's always more than one side to the story. It is no different when we're trying to recognise identities from the past that existed in very different ways from how we understand them today. I think that the context, therefore, of the production of trans narratives is highly relevant to the way in which we save, trace and tell our ancestry. A final consideration why trans identities are missing from the museum is because physically of the binary gendered archiving and collecting system that erases transestry. Even if a museum did collect this collection, and this is what I'm hoping will happen, is that a museum <coughs> will take it on board after the exhibition, um, the work's already done. Any museum that wants to address these missing narratives, it's done. I've even written the condition reports. So it's an absolute gift. But even if they did take it on board, they wouldn't know where to put it. The fact of the matter is, how do you archive trans? Can you imagine the search results? Transnational, transcontinental, trans, right? It's an absolute, like, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing that we need to think about quite deeply. 
And furthermore, how do you archive transition? So would you posit female and then male? What if the person wasn't ever female and they were assigned that identity at birth? What about if they were intersex and they'd been at the end of a surgeon's scalpel for genital reassignment surgery before they were old enough to consent, which is a practice that's still legal in this country? How would you respectfully categorise these gender journeys and identities? Um, while we're on that topic, we need to bear in mind that misgendering is one of the single most disruptive and destabilising cisgendered behaviours that trans people constantly experience because in a single breath it devalidates your entire gender experience. So the last thing we want is for the cis-privileged practice of mispronouning to become institutionalised. And then, of course, there lies the problem with the definitional and epistemological problems surrounding what even constitutes trans. What does it even mean? So on the opening night of the Museum of Transology in January 19, 2017, it meant this and this and this. Tipping the balance of power in the archives is not as radical historian Howard Zinn pointed out in the 1970s, the politicisation of a neutral craft, but the humanising of an inevitably political craft. And the context in which I am insisting we reorganise our UK museum's memory of gender identity politics is what is widely referred to as today's trans tipping point. We must start collecting trans lives now. This instance, in this exact moment, when we were seeing this general shift in social awareness towards understanding that gender can be perceived to be, for many, on a spectrum, a self-defined freedom of expression, culturally informed, or at least we are seeing these issues hotly debated. We must start including trans visibility in the museum as we witness a public shift in visibility of our UK trans communities Trans people are increasingly coming out, finding each other. These are vibrant and creative communities that are organising pride events and making films and bravely expressing themselves to tell their stories in order to combat violence and increase understanding and social acceptance. Bearing in mind that violence against trans people in the UK over the last five years has doubled, right? So increasing visibility has resulted in incremental vulnerability. This is a significant moment in gender politics in the UK and it must be preserved as part of our social history. But museums are very slow creatures and increasingly under-resourced. And in a moment of panic that this trans tipping point would be lost, I decided that I would undertake this radical act of activist collecting. In fact, I must admit, I have always been an object-based person I've always collected. Material culture is my thing. It's what I study. It's what I practice. Um, I find objects talk to me and hold me in a place and time and give me a moment to return. They're signifiers of where I've been and where I've come from and how far I've come. So, in fact, this decision to embark on collecting for the Museum of Transology is really a way of moving on from only collecting my own trans experience. 
it all began with this. It's my collection that I kept from a long time ago of one of the surgical procedures I underwent when I transitioned. I collect absolute, I, collect, I took everything from the room. The nurses were very good with me. My little wristband, my It's a Boy balloon that my friends brought up to me after the surgery, um, all the medical documentation and so forth. But I didn't want this exhibition to be top-down collecting. I wanted to remove the curatorial voice as much as I could. So I essentially wanted the community to be in charge of the collecting and I wanted real people to use real objects to tell their real stories, the triple power of real. The trans community need to be in charge of the production of its own history. This is the only way to despectacularise the media's cis gaze narrative of peeping Tom before and after exposés, these you-never-would-have-guessed success stories that posit a then and a now, because there is no trans before and after. Before is when you are before you are born, and after is when you are dead, and in between we live our lives. The idea that trans people successfully pass somehow posits that some of us fail that we are less than perfect, sewing together second-rate mannequin copies of some idealised cis body. I don't know how many cis bodies you've seen, but the ones I've seen are far from perfect. I will not celebrate the so-called successful surgery that led to Caitlyn Jenner's Time Out magazine front cover, Time magazine front cover. She was married to a Kardashian and is an outspoken Trump supporter. She has nothing to do with me. She is not my trans. (laughs) She is the embodiment of the hyper-spectacularised notion of trans that titillates the straight cis gates. What I am interested in is embracing the idea that everyday crafted trans people and trans embodiment is wondrous, spectacular and exciting. Our bodies are our own, our genders are our own and we are not booby prizes. So it's these everyday stories that the Museum of Transology tells. And in order that the stories are told in their own voices, not only were the people free to give any object they wanted, I absolutely took everything. There was no stipulation on the preciousness. I also encouraged them to write a little tag in their own handwriting that's representative of a journey and metaphorically their gender journey. If a museum does come forward and accession this collection, they will not, and it is a gift, they won't, no white, cis, privileged curator will be able to come along and overwrite the narrative because the tags themselves will have to be accessioned as objects. Everyday objects from everyday people telling everyday stories. And as you saw from the first couple of photos, it's captivated people's attention. The amount of time they are spending in the exhibition is far longer than we've ever seen in the gallery before. There were, it's also timely. There were 43 articles written about the exhibition in the first week of opening and 22 listings. So it's just the first week. I don't know how many there are now. The Disegno, the Quarterly Journal of Design, named it one of the exhibitions that matters internationally in 2017, alongside exhibitions at MoMA, the V&A and the Met. Once word got out that the collection was growing, the objects poured in, and they soon began speaking to each other. There were shared stories of hope, desire, ambition 
acceptance, bravery, courage. There were some clear categories, medication, for example, beauty, and some extraordinary one-off objects that were deeply personal and heartfelt. So I'd like to stop talking about me and talk more about them because that's what the whole exhibition's meant to do. But before I show you some of the objects, I'd like to encourage you to come along and see it because the impact of seeing them all together in one room is incredibly powerful. The collection, for the most part, fell naturally into themed categories and this has been the curatorial decision of the design. The journey, the bedroom, the bathroom, the lounge room, the medical cabinet and the treatment room. It made sense as well because these were private stories being made public. So it was natural that the set design reflected the internal domestic sphere, meshing into the idea of external pathologisation of trans lives and identities. We start off the exhibition on the gender journey section and objects that reflect the start of several donors' realisations of their gender journeys. This was the ticket I used to meet my Canadian girlfriend, the first time seeing her in person as her boyfriend instead of my girlf- her girlfriend. An amazing moment. This letter from the Queen. The Queen has asked me to thank you for your letter of 9th of June, in which you tell Her Majesty of your application to apply for a new passport for the UK Passport Office relating to your gender identity. The Queen was most encouraged to know that you had such a positive experience with the staff at the Passport Office and that they were so considerate in supporting you through this process. Her Majesty was touched that you should have taken the time to write as you did and sends you her good wishes for the future. I personally quite like the idea that the Queen's been touched by a trans person. (laughs) The next one, an inexpensive single blue earring. I'm giving up my blue stud earring. It's very special to me as I've worn it to Brighton for trans pride, first one ever, which is a great deal for me. This person had saved this tiny little earring for the last five years. These young guys' boxer shorts arrived in a post-it pack so tightly wrapped in sticky tape I physically had to cut it open with a pair of scissors, clearly wanted to make sure it arrived safely. Their tag says, Stripey Monstrosity. At the start of my transition, I asked my mum for some boxes and she came back with this, underline, underline, double exclamation mark. As lovely as she is, I couldn't wait to pluck up the courage to buy something less tragic. (laughs) Jade's first bra. When I first transitioned, I felt I needed a bra to pass, but now it don't matter at all. There are flat-chested women and gender should not be defined by our external experience. There's several chest binders, including this one from Colin. This was my first binder. I quickly grew out of it and bought more, but when I grew out of those, I couldn't afford a new one, so I used parts of this one to make them bigger. There's political T-shirts. This one's signed by members of the youth group, all sorts. Um, That's part of Transformers in Brighton. And a few of my favourite signatures on the back read, I'm trans, in it. And another one, smash the cis tem. Over to the bathroom where you will find this precious can of Lynx deodorant. This is my first, in inverted commas, boy product I bought. It was for a drag king night and it was such a life-changing event. It felt so good to be, again in inverted commas, dressing as a boy and broke down some invisible barrier I had against 
boy stuff, opening doors, smelling great. And in the corner, he's drawn a little arm with a little strong out of biro. Um, but it's just so atypical of a normal young boy's gender experience, thinking that you smell good with links. <laughs> this one is our non-binary packing sock, the first sock I packed with. I think it's great because its vivid colour carries my flamboyant non-binary identity to my underwear. Christina's lipstick. This lipstick was from my wonderful sister, who was the first family member to accept and support my transition. And it's a nice shot because you can see how old the lipstick is and that she's saved it for that long. And again, this is why I'd encourage you to come and actually see the exhibition because in real life, the objects speak a lot more than just with photographs. Clara's forms, she explains. A friend that had survived breast cancer gave me a pair of forms that she had used a very short time but preferred to go without. Her intention was to donate them to Turkey where breast forms and wigs are in short supply due to poverty. Cancer patients have to purchase both wigs and forms. I had no spare forms but did donate five wigs to the collection and so my friend offered me the extra forms she had in place of the wigs I donated I thought this very generous of her. One day I might even donate some of my kit to my trans sisters that are less fortunate than me. These Amina breast forms purchased circa 1992 replaced my home-produced bra stuffers. The life expectancy of them is circa two to three years, so my 25 years usage attests to their excellence. The replacements cost about the same today and are equally as pleasing. So you can see that some of the objects that we have have been very precious to people for a very long time. Over to the Cabinet of Curiosity, which is what every curator does when they don't know where to put something. You can see that the furniture that we've used, again, furniture traditionally has been gendered. Men's wardrobes, women's wardrobes, even language around them is frequently gendered. So we were very keen to repurpose and to source things that were existing. And then our set designer, Patrick Bullock, reorganised them and reshaped them into more beautiful forms that were fit for purpose. We did this as a community project as well, and so it meant that um, we were doing outreach with craft, where the community was coming forward, meeting other people, talking to each other and making something beautiful. It meant that they were invested in the show and it reached out. I don't know how many... Put your hand up here if you're, if you're confident enough to, if you identify as trans. So I'm the only person in the room. So you can see that regardless of intent, these spaces, their heritage space, is not effectively reaching out to trans people. So trying to get people involved with the exhibition so that they felt comfortable in this space and to come into an educational institution was very important. And in a way, I think that it actually means that now the set itself has become objects that belong to the collection. Some of our community workshops. This is our trannican. This is like an eight-foot insertion of two forms that spins around and throws genderqueer shadows and twinkles all over the foyer of the London College of Fashion. In the, um, in the Cabinet of Curiosity, Angela's My Little Pony, immersing myself in My Little Pony is how I manage dysphoria. 
This one is from Squid. It's a song in a bottle. And it came with very, very specific instructions, including what to do if the top came off and the song got out. And I think that's about not being, not being fixed with narratives. They wanted to talk about creativity rather than their gender. Ludo's goggles. These are the first pair of goggles that I'd owned in years. Since undergoing top surgery in early 2015, I've started to swim again. It's magical to fully savour the sensations of the water on my bare chest as I dive and swim underwater in the swimming pool and the sea. There's a collection of political badges, as there always is in any underground movement. My intersex inclusive badge is very important. Intersex people can be trans too. Sex and gender are very binary. It shouldn't be acceptable. It ruins lives. Hashtag break the binary. Probably my favourite if I could say that. Ballet shoes from a young person. I've been doing ballet since I was four years old. When I came out, I was worried that people wouldn't see me as male because of my love of ballet and point. But because I love it so much, I refuse to quit. Since coming out, I've become more confident in my dancing and while they were worn long ago before my transition, they hold a lot of meaning to me and ballet has made me the man I am. I find this particularly extraordinary because of the complexity of the gender journey they've gone on, the well-realised understanding that they don't have to adhere to binaries and stereotypes and the self-acceptance, the fact that they've saved them since they were four years old and handed them on to the museum as well really speaks to me about the thirst amongst the trans community to be visibly included within the museum sector. We've got the fiddle toy you saw earlier, a fiddle toy to take my mind off negative feelings. DIY zines, transitional demands, trans people in the welfare state, democratised trans healthcare, wages for advocacy, action for trans health. And these these young people also do um, screen print T-shirts. My favourite one says, nice gender. Did your mum pick it out for you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Over to the medical section, this is part of it. The box you can see at the bottom that's full of all the packaging, I left it in there like that because it came in. I had to go and pick it up to the post office because it wouldn't get through the front door and it's yo big. And I went in and I, what's in this one then? Opened it up, packaging, 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 packaging. Then she got to the little box inside it, that's the hormone box. Opened that up and there's one tiny little glass broken vial that was the first ever injection that he got. But it's so precious to him, he boxed it up like this with all this packaging around it. So I felt like that had to go in as well. Hormones from Dirk, for example. Hormones made me feel better than I expected straight away and after a few months I began recognising myself. And these two from an intersex person's donated them. Their labels read, there are estrogen gel packets and a testosterone blocking injection. I use the three estrogen packets every day and the, th- and the injection every 10 weeks. The next label reads, getting these was an annoying process. The mental health team were being dickheads and gatekeeping me from the gender clinic. I had to self-medicate for a month as I felt desperate, but it became too expensive. It took me a few years to get past the mental health team, but I eventually got prescribed these and they're a lifesaver. This collection of needles came unused needles, came with a label that says every, full stop, two, full stop, weeks, 
full stop for the rest of my life. So to conclude, it's only a tiny selection of what's on display at the Museum of Transology. It's important not only because it tells real stories, despectacularizing trans lives and breaking down stereotypes that lead to a really significant misunderstanding of who we are and what our lives are like. It also helps trans people find each other and locates a place in history from which we can grow. Why is it important? Well, ultimately because of transphobia, when trans people come out, they often lose contacts with the communities from their earlier lives, including family, school and work friends, their partners and their children. Coupled with the fact they're unlikely to have grown up surrounded by trans people, the reality is that for many, a social displacement occurs because of a disassociation from one's personal vestry. This displacement can also be physical, with one in three survey respondents to the trans needs assessment in 2015 reporting they've been homeless in the last three years. This ostracism can be fought not only by the strength of supportive trans communities and the broader LGB community, but also through the preservation and presentation of trans ancestry in historical institutions. This is precisely what museums should do, offer engagement with the past as a way of making sense of the now in order to inform a positive and responsible future. In the words of LGBT historian Susan Ferentinos, to offer roots to those who at one time or another have found themselves without any is a very powerful gift indeed. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.